Gosh, that last song, Lord, I want to yearn for you. Just uh, the first and third Wednesdays of the month, uh, the men um, discipleship group leaders have what we call the hub. And we get together at 4.30 in the morning on the first and third Wednesdays of the month. And just a good time of fellowship with each other and checking up and seeing how our discipleship groups are going. But uh, Kevin asked a really good question uh, this morning that just kind of silenced everybody. And it was, uh, who or what would your wife say is the most important thing in your life? And uh, we were all just like, gulp, you know. <laughs> and I mean, I know what my wife would say, but I don't know what those other guys was. And, uh, you know, just conviction, you know, like, or who would our wife say is the most important thing? And, uh, you know, for us who are in leadership and serving in the church, um, there's just that, you know, even that look of, wow, my husband's really spiritual or just ministry is the number one thing. And we don't want that even to be the number one thing or the most important thing in our life. We want it to be Jesus, just a love relationship with Jesus. And so to sing that, um, Lord, I want to yearn for you. What does that really mean? And so uh, I was going from kind of there to, uh, to the grocery outlet. They'd raised like $380 for the Oasis. So I got to go and get in a newspaper picture receiving the check, you know. And um, on the way, just had this amazing worship song in my heart. And it was um, Rod Stewart's Have I Told You Lately That I Love Ya. And so literally all the way down 7th Street, I'm singing it, man. And, okay, it, honestly, it started by driving by the paint box and thinking of Blaine, and I wanted to text him. I've told you lately I love you, and I'm like, that's a worship song right there. And then I just, all for Jesus, all the rest of the way. So, But um, have you told Jesus lately? Okay, that's just corny. I know. I'm sorry. Not spirit-led at all. I apologize. It's time to get in the Word, huh? Daniel, chapter 5. Good idea, Rory. Good idea. Where is Daniel? I might want to put my little ribbon in there. <laughs> Daniel chapter 5. Have you lost contact with an old pal? Would you like to connect with new friends and show off pictures of your fishing trip to Alaska? Your child's first steps or maybe upload a hilarious video of some stupid human tricks, then you need to sign up for a Facebook account. Facebook has become one of the world's biggest crazes since sliced bread. One in nine people worldwide have a Facebook account. That's 750 million people in the world, 12 times the population of Britain. Uh, everyone from movie stars to politicians, preachers to businesses, 13-year-olds to moms, they all have Facebook accounts. And Prineville's been privileges to host their first property that they've ever owned, 35 new jobs in town, uh, three times the size of your average mall. And as much as we as Prinevilleonians have grown to love Facebook, you want to know who the very first Facebook fan was God. According to Daniel chapter 5, he wrote on King Belshazzar's wall. I apologize. The board is going to be meeting this Sunday thinking about, you might even say he poked Belshazzar. This biblical story is the source of the popular phrase, the writing on the wall. It's a euphemism for impending doom that's so obvious that only a fool could miss its coming. Uh, it also provides the origin for the similar expression, your days are numbered. And so if you know Daniel chapter 5, you know what we're getting to here. And so uh, in verse 1 of chapter 5, the first thing that we're going to be seeing is a carousing king. 
a carousing king. It says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of a thousand. Now, just suddenly in the book, we have a 25-year progression from King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've just grown to know and love, haven't we, you know, in the last four chapters. And, uh, and now all of a sudden we've got this guy, Belshazzar. And uh, we're going to see that things have changed. Things have changed. We know uh, Nebuchadnezzar went through a humiliation process. Kevin spoke on that last week. He had been very prideful and the Lord completely lowered him uh, to really the, the filth of the earth. Uh, so that he would have a, have a right view of who God is and who he is before God. And in that humiliation process, you have chapter 4, verse 27, where it says, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. And we see that Nebuchadnezzar did that. Um, so much so as we have verses 34 through 37, where Nebuchadnezzar writes this worship song to the Lord. He's just humbled before the Lord and he just, you know, he just praises and extols greatness, uh, to the one who's truly that his kingdom is forever and ever everlasting. And so we have that as our last flavor of Babylon. It seems like there's a revival going on in the throne, you know, and, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's 25 years later. We've got this guy, Belshazzar. He's got this feast going. He's got, uh, 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 you know, wine drinking. And we're going to see that that goes on to even more to just absolute debauchery to drunkenness as we look at this carousing king. Um, the neat thing is, is archaeologists, I just love this history and the digging and all of that. They've actually found what they believe are the courtyards to this great throne room, uh, this great, what they call an edifice. And they've noticed that there's one huge wall of this building, 52 meters by 17 meters of this throne room. And one side is blue bricks, blue enamel bricks. And the other three walls are a white plaster substance. And so uh, just neat to see the, the uh, throne room kind of dug out of the ground. And there's this one section of the throne room that it's notched out of the wall. And it would be where King Belshazzar's throne would be, where he's got this, this special table just for him, where he would sit above all of his friends in a prominent position, just showing, hey, I'm better than everybody else. And we're going to see that's going to come to really nip him in the butt or bud, I don't really know how that goes, but uh, later on in the chapter. So this Belshazzar, uh, he's the son of a king, uh, Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was believed to be the son-in-law of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so basically, you know, there's a lot of debate on exactly how long the genealogy is, but it's probably... Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, basically. And uh, Nabonidus, the the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar, had ruled the Babylonian Empire, but his son was kind of like the co-ruler. Nebuchadnezzar would go out and he would spend months at end worshiping the moon god, which is fitly named Sin, um, Sin the moon god. He would go out into this desert oasis and he would just be gone just feeling like his call in life was to go just be a total pagan and just go worship this goddess. And so he would leave his son on the throne to kind of take care of business uh, back at home. And so we read, you know, that, that his son is taking care of business. Um, but at this point, the Persian army had, had come up against Babylon and was really just outside of Babylon's city gates. It's believed that the army was literally setting up a siege against Babylon at the moment this party begins uh, that we read of here in in chapter 5. And uh, Belshazzar's dad, Nebuchadnezzar, had come back and was trying to defend Babylon, but was was beaten. He had to surrender. And now it's kind of like one last hurrah for Belshazzar. As he's in the palace, he just sets up this great... Um, party with a thousand of his rulers. And it says in verse two, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. 
And so we've got a thousand of this guy's, you know, friends, these rulers at the feast with him. Uh, the Greek historian said that there was actually a great festival in the city the night before Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. So it's always cool to see secular history just link up very well with biblical history and just really affirm it. But he drank wine in the presence of the thousands. King Belshazzar will know he's proud, he's a very arrogant man, and he really felt safe and secure inside the walls of Babylon. Um, You know, Babylon really believed that their walls were so huge, they could never, ever be overrun. So they felt safe there. History tells us that Babylon was about 14 miles square. It had a 350 foot high wall that was 87 feet thick. And they would race six chariots at a time up on the top of this wall in Babylon. It was just a massive wall that brought this false security uh, to King Belshazzar. Hundreds of towers at the right intervals guarded the city, provided overwatch for the city. And a hundred enormous bronze gates. There were inner and outer walls that just really made it seem impenetrable. But on this night, this night of this great party, this great festival, we're going to read that the head of gold from Daniel chapter 2 is going to be replaced with the shoulders and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian empire. So in verses 2 and 3, we read that it was while he, he, he was drinking wine, and then verse 2 specifies a little more that it was while he tasted the wine. We're going to have five times in four verses drinking referenced. That he drank wine in the presence of thousands. He tasted the wine in verse 2. He might drink from these goblets that he asked for. He's going to drink from them in verse 3. And then verse 4, drinking wine. So uh, Babylonians known to be heavy drinkers, known to be drunkards. And it's safe to assume by this point in the festival, Belshazzar is just completely drunk. Okay? He's just, he's, he's toasted. And so he says, you know, hey, it seems like a good idea to me to go and to get the articles from the temple, the articles from Judah that we brought with the captivity uh, that we might drink from them. And verse four says that they did, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse one, uh, chapter one, verse two of Daniel, you read of the captivity and how um, Nebuchadnezzar carried the, the house of the Lord into Babylon, the articles of gold and silver, all the treasures of the temple were brought back. Lots of, lots of goblets, lots of, you know, platters, all those sorts of things, lots of utensils of gold and silver brought to Babylon. Now, the way that typically a conquering kingdom would do it is they would bring the idols or the gods, lowercase g, of whatever country they'd conquered, they would bring those gods back and put them in the sanctuary of their god and in a sort of reverent position, kind of facing, you know, their god and kind of bowing down or whatever. But because, you know, the, the worshipers of Yahweh didn't have any graven images, they kind of did, well, let's, let's bring the goblets and the silverware. And they basically set those up in kind of a, in kind of a, uh, <clears throat> case of sorts, you know, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar had enough uh, honor that he didn't um, defame or debase these things, but his grandson, Belshazzar, and he's going to, he's going to just go a couple notches south, you know, he's going to really, he's going to really fall into sin here, we're going to see. You know, it would be similar as if, you know, you had five teenage boys and you left them home alone and, you know, they decided to order a pizza. And when the pizza got there, they got out, you know, your, your antique China collection, you know, that's in the China hutch. And they go into the dining room and they set the China out and just get pizza all over it, you know, get it all over the table, get your nice crystal goblets and put Mountain Dew in it, you know, um, and then times that by like a thousand, you know, because we're dealing with, the articles of the house of God. And, and so, you know, just irreverence and sacrilegious and blasphemy, you know, kind of all wrapped into one as he, as he goes to this. Uh, everybody just drink from these holy vessels. So kind of have the last fling of a terrified king here. And so they drank the wine. They praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, wood, and stone. And God is going to correct him for that in just a few verses. Verse 5 at the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. 
and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. It's here that we have the collapsing king, the collapsing king. And while all of this is going on, all of this debauchery, all of this idolatry, you know, um, just complete sacrilege, uh, I, I love it. This portion of a man's hand appears and begins writing. Uh, whose hand was it? Whose hand was it? Um, you know, it could have been an angels or something like that. Interesting to kind of go back in Israel's history and see in Exodus thirty-one eighteen that the Lord wrote the Ten Commandments. Uh, it says that it was written with the finger of God. And Deuteronomy 9.10 says that, that those, those uh, stone tablets that Moses had had been etched with the finger of God. He has like an engraving tool on the tip, you know, and he just, he can write on things. Um, you know, we see Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke that the Holy Spirit, um, you know, uh, the power of the Spirit casting out demons, it's as if they've been cast out with the finger of God. So perhaps it's God's hand here, um, but I, I kind of like the language that, um, that Belshazzar saw the part of the hand that wrote, you know. Uh, you know, it's kind of like um, we've had this earwig infestation at my house lately. You know, and earwigs are bad, right? Probably, okay. Well, they're just everywhere. And when you kind of, you'll kind of see them on the carpet and you're like, die, you know, and you go up to it and then it kind of buries in the carpet and you can't find it. And you're like, oh my gosh, standing up on the kitchen table, you know. Well, I'm sitting there watching some TV with Lindsay, got my arm around her, you know, and I feel this little like pinching on my arm. And I'm like, what the heck, (laughs) you know? And I look over and there's this earwig just like defending his territory. And we all know earwigs have those pinchers, you know, but when you see it up close and you see the part that's doing the pinching, I mean, your stomach turns, you just, there's something, you know, there's something odd about that weapon being used, you know, it's that part of the earwig, right? Well, transfer it to Belshazzar's day. He's like, okay, there's something going on over there, but I'm seeing the part of it that's doing the damage and it's terrifying me right now. There's just something eerie about it. I don't know what it is or who it is, but it's crazy. And I'm seeing just this part. It's freaking him out. And so he sees that part of the hand. And verse 6, then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. So the king kind of sees this paranormal activity going on in his palace and it just plumb freaks him out. You know, you can picture the king going from prideful debauchery, you know, I am the the monarch of Babylon, to just instant uh, humbling fear that's causing him to be fearful and have this kind of Elvis-style hip movement go on, you know. He's just... He's just knocking his hips together. He's just, his, his blood just pours out of his face. You know, his countenance it looks like he's seen a ghost in a sense. New Living Translation says that his face turned pale with fear. Such, you know, terror gripped him that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way beneath him. Just a collapsing of the king here. And so just talk about terror in his, in his, heart. Uh, The king, verse 7, cried out aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler over Babylon. So interesting that he would see this thing on the wall and knowing the history of his grandpa, you know, and, and visions and dreams and things like that, and, and even the history with the astrologers and the magicians and the soothsayers and the Chaldeans, that his first line of, of reasoning is to go to them. Well, it seems like it's always worked in the past, you know. Have them come on in and have them interpret what's going on here. They have a reward, a major promotion, not only in position, but in appearance, this position and appearance of royalty. So verse 8, all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Uh, big surprise for those of us that have been reading the book of Daniel, right? I mean, you can just picture these guys that were there in Daniel chapter 2, couldn't interpret, couldn't give the dream, then couldn't interpret the dream, um, you know, and, and 
just that history of them and for them to just be like, oh, no, I got nothing, King. I have no clue what this writing on the wall <laughs> means, you know. Um, big surprise, right? They've never really been that great at what they've been paid to do. Um, so King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. So, you know, kind of hope for him had, has been lost again. Well, maybe, maybe there's an interpretation. Nope, no interpretation. No hope again. Uh, his countenance changes again. So he went from, you know, whatever, white, you know, all the blood left his face to whatever the next step is, maybe green now, you know, just more terror, more fear that he's troubled. Everyone around him is astonished now. They're struck dumb with fear or terror. In verse 10, you enter in the queen. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. This is probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife. This is like the queen mother. And, you know, she's probably been reading these self-help books or whatever, you know, because she comes in to where everyone's, you know, witnessing what's going on. And and her, her message is, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's probably nothing. And uh, she does bring some other great advice, and that would be that he should go and talk to Daniel. Verse 11, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And you might want to underline that phrase because it's something that we're going to read a few times in this chapter, that in Daniel was the spirit of the holy God. You saw that a lot last week in Daniel chapter 4. And in the days of your father... Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, speaking of forefather, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas, were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. The queen mother remembers that night in Daniel chapter 2, where the king had, Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of, of that great chiefly statue with, made up of all the different metals and the stone. She remembers when none of the astrologers or soothsayers could give the dream or its interpretation. She remembered her husband's humiliation when he was made like an ox, you know, to eat grass and had hair that grew like eagle's feathers and his fingers grew like eagle's claws, you know. And uh, she remembered the humiliation of her husband, the humbling of her husband. And, you know, she came and she just said, man, there's a, there's a guy that the spirit of the living God is in. And there's no doubt in my mind that he can speak your dream. He can, or he can interpret the writing on the wall here. She notices that in him, or in as much in him, there's an excellent spirit. Again, you might underline that. Just in him, there's an excellent spirit. He was indwelt with the spirit of God. Knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams, solving of riddles and explaining enigmas, or as the King James Version puts it, a dissolving of all doubts. When this guy came in the room, man, there was just a gift of wisdom upon him. There was a peace that would come as he would come. He could solve riddles, these difficult problems. I mean, if you heard, you know, that he who makes it sells it, he who buys it doesn't use it, and he who uses it doesn't know it, you could talk to Daniel about it and he'd say, it's a coffin. You know, or if you heard what's black and white and red all over, Daniel would just be like, it's a newspaper, you know, uh, he's kind of the Batman to the Riddler, you know, he just, there, there's nothing that he can't figure out. I love riddles. It's a lot of, if you're ever on a long bus ride, start playing riddles. It's a lot of fun. Daniel, Daniel just had that gift of figuring out these, these hard sayings, really. Uh, these things that couldn't be explained. And so call for him. He'll give the interpretation. Verse 13 Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who's one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard of you. Here it is again. That the spirit of God is in you. 
and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. The impressive thing about Daniel was that the spirit of God was in him. And that brought light and understanding. Remember, just uh, Acts chapter 26 has just been ringing in my heart. What Jesus told Paul he would preach. He would preach the gospel and that that would convey people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. From the power of Satan to God. He preached the forgiveness of sins. You know, in an Old Testament example, we just see that Daniel had the indwelling of the Spirit. He just had light and revelation. Excellent wisdom was found in him. You know, the beautiful thing about being a New Testament Christian is that we don't have just times when the Spirit comes upon us to empower us. But since Jesus has ascended, all those that believe in him will have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed into the disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. Those that believe in him can also be baptized in the Holy Spirit and receive power to be witnesses to the farthest parts of the world. And what a privilege it is, what a glorious thing to be a New Testament believer, a New Testament Christian, where though Jesus has ascended, he didn't leave us as orphans, but he says, it's better that I ascend and I will send the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he will dwell in each one of you that you can be Christians or little Christ. Instead of one Christ being in Israel, trying to evangelize the world, there's, if you're a Christian in this room, maybe 10 or 12, 15, 30 of us, little Christ going around, empowered by the spirit of God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's an exciting thing that out of us would flow torrents of living water, Jesus said. And this he spoke, signifying of the Holy Spirit who would be given to those that believe in him, but who hadn't come yet because he hadn't yet been glorified. And so what an awesome thing, what an encouraging thing. If you are a Christian today, if you placed your faith in Christ, you have that same excellent spirit within you that can give you favor with kings and queens and princes. A common man out on the street that you might speak to You can speak in the power and the boldness and the daring courage that the Holy Spirit brings. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6, we're told that you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. I will dwell in them. We're temples of the living God. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so with an excellent spirit of God comes excellent favor, comes excellent wisdom. And so I've heard that the spirit of God is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give me the interpretation of the thing. I kind of like the way he closes that, the thing. You know, it's like the swamp thing, you know, or it's like the predator or some horror creature that he has seen in his throne room that day. You know, I often think that if I ever have to cast a demon out of somebody or, you know, see something psycho or crazy, you know, I want to be around a lot of people, you know, can, they can hold me or something, you know, doesn't really matter. You know, he, he was with thousands of people and it, it loosed his loins as the King James version puts it. You know, there was major trembling and that thing, (laughs) I want an interpretation for it. And so he told him, you know, um, there will be a reward, verse 16. I've heard of you. And, you know, if you can read writing, give me this interpretation. I'll give you the uh, the robe of purple, have the chain of gold put around your neck, and you'll have the third spot in the kingdom. You got my dad, you got me, then you, buddy. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. And give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel's not interested in, you know, the, the filthy mammon, if you will. You know, he, he just wants to be a servant of the Lord and be obedient 
as the Lord would have him speak. Notice that he's, he's ready to go at, at any given time. He's about 83 years old right now. You know, um, he's, you know, he was raised in prominence on Nebuchadnezzar, and it appears here that he's kind of been placed back in obscurity. Um, this king didn't even know who he was. And, you know, but he's not bitter about that. Or any, he's just ready to go. Like, Lord, use me. You know, you never know when that day is going to come, when you've been in obscurity for a while. And the Lord's going to say, all right, buddy, it's go time. I'm going to have you testify before the kings. And isn't it cool, again, to know that excellent spirit is within us? And Jesus tells us, Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21, that when we are called before these kings, he's, the Holy Spirit's going to help us speak. He's going to speak for us. And he's bring to remembrance the things that he's taught us so that we can speak them. Those three different things. He's not going to let us down. But just know this, it's not going to get any better in this world. We're going to be called to give a defense for the things that, the hope that we have within us. But he was ready, man, beck and call. I'm ready to go. I don't want your reward. I'll just speak and be obedient to what the Lord would have me speak. And so uh, here in verse 18, we see the heritage of the king. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. You know, Daniel's theology about God here was saturated in the truth about God's glorious sovereignty. It was God that declared the rise or the fall of kingdoms. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, Daniel says that, Um, He determines the course of world events. He removes kings and he sets others on the throne. And Daniel had to remind Nebuchadnezzar of that. And Daniel's telling Belshazzar this. It's the Lord that put your dad, the head of gold, on his throne. In verse uh, 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, with all that power brought, um, you know, just too much pride, Um, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like beasts. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. So that absolute power led to absolute corruption And so God had to humiliate Nebuchadnezzar and put him right in his humble place again. Till he knew, verse 21, that the Most High God ruled uh, in the kingdoms of men and he points whomever he chooses. You remember from our studies that Nebuchadnezzar, though he'd been impressed with God, he'd had encounters with God, uh, he never surrendered to that God. There were still other gods to him and, and God was just one of them and probably even the best one. But finally, at the end of chapter four, you see that he came to know he's... He's God. He's the God. He's the most excellent God. And he's telling Belshazzar his father's testimony here, his heritage. Dude, your your grandpa was the monarch of of the world. And he had to be humbled by God. And you know it happened. In fact, it's interesting. I don't know what, exactly how much Kevin told you guys, but even secular history knows there was something that happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life for seven years that just, he went psycho. He got some crazy fever or something and he just went out and he started living like a beast. You know, how awesome that the scriptures tell us what happened. That the Lord had, had humbled this man because of his pride. That was his heritage. And so it says there, in verse 22, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. We have the pride of the king here. That there was a lack of humility, even though he knew that his grandpa had just been severely humbled by the living God. You know, I think that as we look at the heritage of this king and as we look at the pride of this king, such a word for you young ones here tonight. So, you know, all you young ones, if you're under 18, listen to me, okay? What a word for us because we can grow up, you can grow up and you'll hear your parents' testimony. They're gonna tell you, man, I rebelled. I rebelled against my parents. I rebelled against my God. 
And I'm reaping the consequences to this day. It's affected everything about me. But Jesus has come in and he's providing healing and there's still effects from that sin. There's still consequences from that sin. But let me tell you, my son, listen to my words. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is man's all. And yet how we and some of you older, older folks, you can do a test that, man, we, we rebel against that because of our pride. We ignore the counsel of our parents. We ignore their testimony. We think we know better. You guys, you're going to pay a desperate price if you rebel against the counsel of your parents, if you rebel against the heritage of your family. For those of you that have Christian parents now and they've, they've warned you and they've told you, don't do what I've done. Obey the scriptures, obey the testimonies. I think it's just so tragic when, you know, youth become stiff-necked to their parents' counsel and to their wisdom. And then you begin to watch the effects of sin take control of their lives. And some people, they never come back from that. Some people do, but, but they have that effects from that sin. You know, the wages of sin is, is death. It's destructive. And so what a word for you to listen, you young people, listen to your parents. You know, the Proverbs just begin with that. My son, listen to my words. Listen to my words. David, you remember on his deathbed, he just told Solomon, come here, son, you know, listen to my words. Keep the commandments, keep the testimonies. If you do, it'll be well with you. But if you don't, the Lord will rip his kingdom out from under you. Obey, obey, there's such blessing. And so, you know, Belshazzar, even though he knew, it says there in verse 23, even though he knew he wouldn't humble himself, instead, he lifted himself up, verse 23. You've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They've brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you've not glorified. Instead of humbling yourself, which speaks of being lowly, going down, you know, lowliness of mind, Philippians 2 says. Instead of a humility, there's been a lifting up of yourself against the God of heaven. It's not a good idea. We see Belshazzar with a willful, deliberate uprising against God. We see that he, like all men, when men sin, they have a hostility towards God and they deliberately dilute God's truth that God had revealed to him and turn it into a lie, as Romans chapter one says. When we willfully sin, we exchange the truth of God. Here, I'm gonna give you this and you just give me a lie. You tell me what I want to hear. You tell me what I want to believe. No matter how false it is, it's what I want. God, you can have your truth. I want the lie. And so he did that. He knew the story of his dad, his forefather, Nebuchadnezzar. And he exchanged that truth that he knew for the lie that there are gods, lowercase g, in gold and silver and in wood. Oh, what a great God that's in wood, you know? The God of toothpicks, you know? The God of stone. These elemental gods. And Romans 1, again, says that's exactly what society has done. We exchange worship for what belongs to the creator and we begin to worship the created things. And so you contrast that with the end of verse 22, You've got these, or the middle, you've got these gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone. They don't see, they don't hear, they don't know. They're nothing. And then you've got the God who holds your breath in his hands. He owns all your ways. Has your days numbered, you might say. And yet you've not glorified him. You've glorified yourself. Or you've glorified these other gods. And that is a big mistake. We see Belshazzar lifting himself up against the living God. We see him oh so prideful. I was reminded today of of a chapter out of Mere Christianity that I'd read years ago. 
And it's called The Greatest Sin, written by C.S. Lewis, this chapter. And it's about pride. I'm just going to read you a couple paragraphs from this chapter. I now come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they're cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who's not a Christian accuse himself of this vice, of being prideful. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Towards the end of the chapter, I'm sorry, this is still the beginning. (laughs) The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we've come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And the the chapter concludes with this. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that you are proud. And a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Humbling to read a passage like that on humility. And then you come to the scriptures and you're humbled even more. In James chapter four, verse 10, we're told that we're to humble ourselves, to lower ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Psalm 147, six says that the Lord lifts up the humble, but he casts the wicked down to the ground. Tonight, we're gonna see Belshazzar cast to the ground. There's a Matt Redman song. It says, we lift you high and bow down low. How high can you be? How low can I go? I always loved that. You know, it's essentially the words of John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. You'll save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks, Psalm says. And you know that when Belshazzar was sitting there on his throne and thinking about how great he was and how these Medes and these Persians, there's no way they'll conquer Babylon. And let's just think about all those gods that are in our sanctuary that are bowing down to Murdoch right now. In fact, hey, we're drinking right now. Hey, why don't you bring on in the, the pathetic vessels of those Judeans, the goblets and the platters. Bring them on in. We'll drink out of that. We'll get drunk out of that. Look how great we are. Look who we've conquered. That haughty look as he probably kick back in his chair and put his feet up on the table, eating a turkey drumstick or something, you know? And the Lord said, that haughty look, it's not good. I'm going to cast you down. First Peter chapter five, verse five shows us that Christian character is that we should be clothed in humility for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He is rebuked, he's corrected by Daniel for this pride that's in his heart, that he's worshiped idols and that is such a great folly rather than worshiping the God who held his breath in his hand. As Paul said, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. Not wise to lift yourself up against him. Verse 24, then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. 
Meeny, meeny, so tempting to say miny mo here, but I'm not going to do it. Meeny, meeny, tekel a parson. This is the interpretation of each word. Meeny, God's numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom's been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so the, the interpretation, perhaps even the translation of the, the language there, meany actually means to number. And so you've been counted, and that's, that's two times. You've been counted, you've been counted. You're finished, basically. You're through. Enjoy these final moments on your throne because you've been counted and you've been found wanting. Verse 27, tekel just means to weigh. You've been weighed in the balance. And you're a lightweight. You don't measure up. You've been found wanting. And then verse 28, the aparson or the perez, it means to split. Your kingdom's been split. And what a prophecy to know that that night, that very night outside the gates, are, are two nations, the Medes and the Persians, that have a, a unity, a, a, a pack. They're allied. And they are going to be the, the two arms of silver. That head of gold will be divided and become two arms of silver. The Daniel chapter 2 prophecy tells us. And so the, the, it's, it's given in verse 29. Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him. He should be the third ruler in the kingdom. You know, if you've ever been around someone who's a bit inebriated, a bit... You know, they don't really remember the things that you told them. I don't want your reward. And, you know, kind of pushing themselves, here, give them this, you know, purple coat, you know, and put this gold chain in. And even though it wasn't a good word, I'm letting you know you're done. Your kingdom's over. You're finished. You're going to be killed soon. Yeah, I have this purple robe and let me put this gold chain around your neck. It doesn't tell us how tight he put it on there, you know. Just up around your neck, you know. Um, but in his drunkenness, he completely forgot what Daniel had said, I don't want the reward. But you think even more importantly, in his, in his insobriety, he, he had no appeal to the God that held his breath. He showed no brokenness, no humility, you know, no repentance to this God that was basically calling him out to be humble. And it says there in verse 30, that that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. We have a dead king here. It's interesting that in Jewish uh, commentaries from really early on in the first century, it's called the Midrash literature, says this, that Cyrus and Darius, who are the kings of the Medo-Persian Empire, they were employed as doorkeepers of the royal palace. So these kings kind of went in stealthily, at least this is just one historical account. They kind of went in stealthily as undercover spies and kind of became doorkeepers during this party while all of this is going on. Belshazzar, being greatly alarmed by the mysterious handwriting on the wall and apprehending that someone in disguise might enter the palace with murderous intent, ordered his doorkeepers to behead everyone who attempted to force an entrance that night, even though such person should claim to be the king himself. Belshazzar, then overcome by sickness, left the palace unobserved during the night through the rear exit. On his return, the doorkeepers refused to admit him. In vain, he pled that he was the king. And they said, has not the king ordered us to put to death anyone who attempts to enter the palace, though he claimed to be the king himself? Suiting the action to the word, Cyrus and Darius grasped the heavy ornament forming part of the candelabrum and with it shattered the skull of the royal master. So that's, you know, one historical account of how Belshazzar was slain. You know, the sad thing is just seeing no repentance. Galatians chapter six, verse seven and eight says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He who sows to the flesh of the flesh, he'll reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. You know, every single one of us, we have reaped it to some degree sin in our life. We've been counted 
We've been weighed and we've been found wanting. Our best righteousness on our best day cannot stand before the holiness of God. If we were to weigh out our righteousness, it would be inadequate. We would be found wanting. Romans chapter three or eight, chapter eight, verse three tells us that in what the law couldn't do because it was weak in the flesh, God did by sending his only son. He obeyed the law. He condemned sin. We couldn't do it. We were wanting. We were weak in the flesh. We couldn't be good enough. But Jesus could, and he was, and he did it. And if we would come to him, we would have his sufficiency placed upon us. See, when Jesus is weighed, he's perfect. He's not wanting at all. He's not lacking any righteousness. And he clothes us in that. He puts that on us. We've sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is exactly what Belshazzar got. We're no better than him. But the good news, the gift of God is eternal life. Gift of God is eternal life. Guys, worship team can come on up and we'll close there tonight. Quarter till, it's a record. But as we worship and as we close, man, let's repent. Let's repent of our pride. Our pride in that we won't learn from our heritage. We won't learn from our fathers and our mothers and their history and how they plead with us. And we won't even learn from the scripture's history. As Romans chapter 15 and 1 Corinthians 10 tell us that these things were written for our learning. You know, that we wouldn't commit sexual immorality like they did in the wilderness where some 125,000 died in one instant. You know, that we wouldn't rebel against God, that we wouldn't murmur and complain. We wouldn't commit idolatry. Let's learn from our history. Let's learn from our heritage, both from the scriptures and from our parents who love us and try to speak into our lives, their experience with God. Let's cast down our pride where we've lifted ourselves up against the God that holds our breath. Let's repent. Let's humble ourselves. Let's bow down low and lift him up. How low can we go? How high can he go? Let's worship him in that tonight humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due time.